pleasure to introduce to you our keynote speaker for lunch. Dr. Norman Sussman is a board-certified transplant hepatologist from Baylor College of Medicine in Houston. He's an avid researcher and been published in multiple peer-to-peer -peer, um, journals. He is the director of Project ECHO at Baylor College of Medicine, which is a program that instructs primary care providers in both the diagnosis and management of patients with chronic hepatitis C. And his interest in drug use and addiction stems from the current hepatitis C epidemic among young injection drug users in America. So um, we'll leave a little time for Q&A at the end. Enjoy your lunch. Thanks, everyone. It is encouraging that people clapped, because I didn't think I could really compete with lunch. Uh, I have been in the audience during lunch, and I know what that is. If at any point I, I, I begin to feel that you're not paying much attention, I'm going to hide behind this poster, which has a picture of me. Uh, otherwise, I am delighted to be here. Um, the, the reason I'm so interested and why I, why I jumped at this opportunity is the medical side of facing Okay, is that better? Okay, so we on the medical side are facing a uh, reality related to, uh, to drug use and addiction that we're not really capable of managing. Uh, and so we're... Is that better? Shall I just use this one? Okay. Um, so, are you ready? All right. Um, so we're, we're very interested in how we're going to cope with something new. And so this is a, a new program uh, between uh, a collaboration between Gilead and the medical community to try to address a new problem. Uh, and for those of you who are not familiar with hepatitis C, we've been focused on former drug users uh, and older people, people my age, who have a disease they got 30 years ago, and now we're faced with a brand new epidemic and, and how, we, how we deal with that is going to be the issue. So let me, uh, the other important thing and the reason why addiction specialists need to know something about hepatitis C is your clients and your patients are going to come to you and they're going to have questions. And in order to have some credibility, you're going to need to know some of the terms and some of the things related to hepatitis C. So to keep your credibility, these are going to be some useful pointers for you. And then, of course, afterwards, I'll be glad to uh, answer questions. What? Why don't I turn... Let me turn this off. Yeah. Hold on. Okay. Okay. Are we still on? Okay. All right. Um, all right. So the uh, the title of today's talk is uh, exploring uh, hepatitis C care. So there is a Gilead booth right outside. It has HCV on you uh, on the uh, on the heading. And many of you have asked, what is HCV? HCV is hepatitis C virus. 
Uh, and I think there was an interesting oversight that in our community we would never think twice about using that abbreviation. All right, so, um, <clears throat> so the, the major problem with hepatitis C is in current and former drug users. Uh, people uh, will be using the abbreviation PWID, people who inject drugs, uh, who I think, uh, I think is probably quite common to you. There are approximately 3.5 million people in the United States with hepatitis C. Um, some people think it may be double that. The, uh, the people don't usually come forward and say, hey, I've got hepatitis C. Um, so of the 3.5 million, 60%, maybe more, are former or current drug users. And these are injection drug users. Um, but here's the thing we're particularly interested. In 2013, the CDC estimated that there were 29,000 new cases of hepatitis C. This is unprecedented in this day and age that we would have an epidemic of this size with these consequences and have so little to do about it. Um, and if you can see, read this over here, 80% of the new infections occurred among people who inject drugs. Um, so, yeah, looking at that uh, diagram, an estimated 3.5, uh, 3.8 million people have injected heroin at least once, a shocking statistic. Um, 425,000 injected in the last year. Uh, you know, I, uh, that seems mind-boggling to me. Uh, 300,000 people are actively using heroin, and, si and there's been a 63% increase in the U.S. Uh, in between 2002-2013. So uh, the medical community has been instructed to pay attention to patients who complain of pain, please be very diligent, give them a lot of pain meds, uh, and then we find that people, when they leave the hospital, still need their pain meds, uh, keep taking them, and then start getting them on the street, and then find that heroin is a lot cheaper than Oxycontin, and that's how the, uh, that's how the project, uh, the problem goes. Um, so, <clears throat> let's talk about hepatitis C transmission in uh, people who inject drugs. So, tr the transmission, so who here thinks that drug users are worried about HIV? They're somewhat worried, it depends on their age. Uh, young people are generally not very worried. When I get a needle stick, am I more worried about hepatitis C or HIV? I'm worried about HIV because it's not curable, but until very recently, I was worried about hepatitis C because the risk of getting it was 10 times higher than HIV. So if I stick myself with a needle, uh, my chance of getting chronic hepatitis C is way higher than getting HIV. And, uh, the host factors uh, is uh, the propensity of young drug users not to be very worried. They're, they feel uh, they feel immortal, they don't think it's going to be a problem. And then there's the hepatitis C problem, and that is it takes very few viruses to set up a chronic infection. If you get the infection, at least 75 to 85 percent will go on to chronic infection. Very few people, a minority of people, are going to get over their initial infection. If they get over the initial infection, let's say you got hepatitis B and you get over your initial infection, you're immune. You have immunity and you won't get it again. Hepatitis C is not the same. So you get one infection, it didn't take the first time, it may take the second time or the third time if you're injecting every day. 
eventually you're going to get it. So if you look among drug-using communities, 90% of them will have hepatitis C. So it's very good at setting up a chronic infection, and it lives for a long time. It lives for, um, I think this says for at least, oops, um, Hmm. Uh, it, it lives for at least a, uh, a week in a, in a needle bevel, may live longer in, a, in the barrel of a syringe, so it's not very easy to, to, uh, to kill off either. So you have this combination of a virus that is quite robust and is very good at infecting, it's extremely infective, and is very good at setting a chronic infection. And so that's why we have this problem right now. Now, um, so when you look at people who inject drugs, and I know this is something you people know something about, 64% uh, of them are chronically infected. So if you look at your drug-using community, you will find that 64% of them are infected. Uh, I just came from one of the uh, fantastic breakout sessions on, uh, on criminal justice. In the criminal justice system, in jails, uh, in prisons in, in Texas, the prevalence rate of hepatitis C is probably around 36 to 40 percent. So an incredibly common find, a common disease. Um, now, when we look back, this, this, uh, this epidemic really uh, started back in the 70s. And so if you look at 2002 on the left, I have a pointer over here, I don't know if you can see that. If you look at the graph on the left, in 2002, uh, the orange bars are women, the blue bars are men, uh, the age is at the bottom, and in case you can't read it, this age, that's 40, that's 50. So there was a, in 2002, there were people aged 40 to 50. You'll notice that the men were at least two to three times more common than women, which reflects the drug-using community. Now have a look at 2009. Men and women, look at the ages. Here's 20 here, here is 20, 30, 40. There is this massive surge in people in the 20 to 30 uh, year old age group, and they are half women. Not only that, they are everywhere. They're uh, rich kids in nice neighborhoods, and they're poor kids in Appalachia, and they are in small towns across Texas and Idaho and Indiana, they're everywhere. So there is this massive epidemic that is completely different from the last one, and that is these are people from all kinds of backgrounds, including very affluent backgrounds. So, for example, there is a, uh, a well-known practice in, um, in San Diego where kids will go to open houses. So you have your house, you're selling your house, you open it up, people come through, a bunch of kids show up like they're going to buy your house, and they really are looking at your medicine cabinet to see if you have any OxyContin or, uh, or Norco there. Um, so when I put my house up, I'm going to make sure I take all of my Norco before. Um, that was a joke. You can laugh now. Okay. So, uh, so let's have a look at uh, hepatitis C. So you see the acute infection over here, acute infection at the top. The clearance rate is 15 to 25 percent. Okay. No, I don't think you can see it there. So 15 to 25 percent clear, that means 75 to 85 percent go on to chronic infection. The chronic infection is over here. Um, there are potential extrahepatic manifestations. By extrahepatic, I mean things not related to the liver. This is viral hepatitis. People think, oh, it affects the liver. It affects a lot of other things too, so it's something you should know about because your patient says, gee, I've got this outbreak on my hands. That may be related to the hepatitis C, uh, not to something else. Um, so you have the 75 to 85% chronic infection. 
Um, of those, 10 to 20 percent will end up with cirrhosis. If you wait longer, it's probably more like 30 to 40 percent. So we are seeing the tail end. The patients I see now with hepatitis C are in their 60s and 70s. They did stuff a long time ago, and now we're seeing the consequences. So the 20-year-olds we're seeing now are not going to express their disease until they're in their 40s and 50s and all the way up into their 80s. You'll also see that of these people, this 10 to 20 percent, uh, up to 30 percent will have cirrhosis at 10 years. Okay? So, so once you have the cirrhosis, I'm sorry, they, they will have decompensation. So they will end up with severe complications of the cirrhosis. And another 1 to 4 percent will end up with liver cancer. So I can tell you that every week we see at least two or three new liver cancers. And we're only one center in Houston. Every liver center is seeing the same thing across America because we're seeing the final stages. Um, now, surprising to most people is that the, uh, the death rate from hepatitis C has exceeded the death rate from HIV. Um, so people are always shocked to hear that. But here you see in, 20, in uh, 2010, by 2010, eight years ago, hepatitis C mortality was higher than HIV, and that trend continues. Uh, if you have a look at what we're seeing on the hepatitis C side, the red bar shows you decompensated cirrhosis. That means people with nasty complications of cirrhosis, like their belly is swollen with fluid, uh, they're vomiting blood, their eyes are yellow, and their expected mortality is one to two years. Also, in the little blue line over here is HCC. HCC stands for hepatocellular carcinoma, which is a nice way of saying liver cancer. And you see that liver cancer was practically non-existent but in the 1980s. By 2000, we were seeing it. And this is expected to peak around 2020 to 2025. And so it is the hepatitis C is now the number one reason that people are requiring liver transplantation. And since many of them are on Medicaid, uh, that's where your tax dollars are going. All right, have a, let's have a look at some of the, uh, the non-liver manifestations. I know you can't read this from the back, so I'll tell you a couple of things. One is a thing called mixed cryoglobulinemia, which is a complex of protein and virus that results in obstruction to blood flow, kidney damage, brain damage, all kinds of things. Uh, here, lymphoproliferative disorders. That's a nice way of saying lymphoma. Okay? Uh, so it has been linked to certain kinds of lymphoma. Um, there's porphyria. So if someone shows up with blisters on their hands in a sun-exposed uh, spot, uh, that, is a, uh, that is related to the hepatitis C virus. So very important when your patient tells you that to say, oh, I know what that is. Um, so then what about uh, depression, anxiety, and fatigue? These are very common findings in the hepatitis C community. You see there a balloon showing you a 50% line. The top 50% is uh, people without neuropsychiatric disorders. The bottom 50% is all of my patients, uh, and that is the people with neuropsychiatric disorders. So it's very common. Not only that, but people report that they feel better after they cure. I'll get back to that in a minute. So here we have 140,000 uh, PWIDs with HIV. 
Of those, 50 to 90% were also co-infected with hepatitis C. Um, so this, this coexistence of these two diseases is, uh, is very important. Um, what's the problem? Why, why is this? We don't actually know. We know that HIV directly impacts the immune system. Hepatitis C has a very funky uh, relationship with the immune system. It seems to, there, there is much higher viral replication. Uh, there is much more rapid increase in fibrosis or scarring of your liver. Uh, we have a much higher incidence of, um, a much higher incidence of, of, uh, of complications. Okay, so fibrosis. When I say fibrosis, I mean scarring of your liver. Fibrosis is the process that eventually leads to cirrhosis. So we divide it into stage one through four, and stage four is, uh, is cirrhosis. So people say, what stage am I? If you have cirrhosis, you're stage four. Anything else is less than stage four. This is predicted fibrosis using a thing called a fibro, uh, fibro scan. It measures liver stiffness, and if you look at the red bar, this is people with hepatitis C mono-infection. If you look at this bar, it's people with HIV co-infection. This is the age, here is the score, the F score, and here you see F3, here is F2.5, so this is, goes from mild to moderate fibrosis, and you see that the people who are mono-infected are 10 to 15 years behind the HIV co-infected patients. So the HIV rapidly accelerates the rate at which you uh, get fibrosis. Um, all right, so why am I wasting all your time telling you this? Because many people, when I speak to a primary care uh, audience and I say, who here thinks hepatitis C can be cured? Half of them say, nope, no cure. And that is completely incorrect. In fact, hepatitis C is the only chronic virus that can be cured. Okay? So think about some chronic viruses. Uh, HIV. Cured? No. Uh, how about herpes? You know that saying, herpes is forever? It is. You can't get rid of it. CMV, cytomegalovirus, Epstein-Barr virus. All of these chronic viruses cannot be cured, but hepatitis C has a very peculiar, half, a very peculiar life cycle. It is entirely existent as an RNA in your cells. And therefore, when you clear that last RNA, there is nothing else for it to grow from, and you are cured. So it is totally curable. That is a wonderful thing, because the cure rates for current medications are 95 to 100%. So very easy to do. What's the downside? The downside is after you're cured, you do not have immunity. So if you get over most viruses, you got the measles when you were a kid, you're immune to measles. You're not going to get it again. Uh, same thing for a lot of things we can vaccinate. But for hepatitis C, you do not have immunity. Therefore, when you treat someone, a major problem is getting them over their addiction so they don't reinfect themselves. So a critical step in and this, this big gap between what medicine is thinking and what addiction specialists think is how do I stop this person from re-injuring themselves with another infection? Um, when I say a cure, it's not that difficult. In order to get a cure, you start out over here with your viral load. It comes down below detection. You keep it there till the end of treatment, which is usually 12 weeks. 
you check it again 12 weeks later. If you have not recurred at 12 weeks, we call that a sustained virological response, or SVR. SVR at 12 weeks, the, re the relapse rate after 12 weeks is practically zero. So after 12 weeks, you know the answer. So in, in half a year, you can go from being infected to being told you're free of, of virus. Uh, the medications, it's been a long, hard road. Uh, interferon was approved in 1991. Has anyone here taken interferon? Nobody, nobody should take interferon. It's a horrible medication, a lot of side effects, uh, and wasn't very effective. It was very expensive. So the cost per cure was really high. It was about $180,000 to achieve a cure because more than half the people failed. So you're wasting a lot of money. In uh, ribavirin was approved here, pegylate interferon was approved here, and then after 2011, we developed a class, I should say we, a, a class of drugs was developed by the pharmaceutical industry um, that we called DAAs, or direct acting antiviral agents. Instead of working on your immune system, they work directly to stop viral replication. As I told you, once the virus stops replicating, the RNA cannot live very long, and it just dies off. Okay, so, um, so let's have a look at um, all-cause mortality. If you are cured, in the blue line over here, this is what your expected life expectancy is. I guess I said expected twice, in case you weren't paying attention. So, if you look at a 10-year life expectancy curve, here, in blue are the people with a, with, a, with a cure, in pink are the people without a cure, and I just ask you, which, one, which group would you rather be? Who'd rather be in the blue group? Nobody? Okay, so you're all in the pink group. Okay, I think it's very important to understand that this affects death rates. People who are not cured have a higher mortality. <clears throat> if you look at another study doing the same thing, these are the people who had successful treatment in red. Here are the people who did not have successful treatment. Um, and if you look at the onset of complications, so this one was cancer, this was complications, and you see a very clear difference uh, in, these, uh, in these people. What about neurocognitive? Neurocognitive function uh, is known to improve after a cure. And so I'm not sure how well that projects. There's a guy with a couple of gears in his head. We find that they have divided uh, 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 attention performance is better, working memory is better, vigilance is better. So a cure, most of the people will tell you afterwards and on testing will show that they are performing better. Um, SVR associated with improved health-related quality of life. So in green, you have people that were cured. In blue, you have people that were not. These are the mean changes. Uh, and you see this is true for physical summary, mental summary, and the sexual summary scale. And the uh, company said I shouldn't say too much about sex, so I'm going to go on to the next slide. Um, if you are saying how can you manage uh, uh, um, drug users across the spectrum, there is a tendency for physicians to say, oh, you can't treat drug users. I'm here to say that is not true. Active injectors. Occasional drug use, people have been found to, uh, to actually have a very good outcome. The problem is here, the frequent users, the daily users, not very good candidates for antiviral therapy. 
their lives are too chaotic, they have too many other factors going on, they don't take their medication, and they're likely to reinfect themselves. Uh, the opioid, ag uh, um, and, uh, opioid agonists, these people do very well. They're generally in well-structured programs, their lives are generally better structured, their results are absolutely excellent, and if you look at former injectors, uh, studies have shown that they do very well too. So we are not, we don't have a problem with the former, uh, we don't have a problem with current uh, intermittent, we do have a problem with the regular daily injectors. If you want to know how, uh, in a, this, uh, this study that was in the interferon era, these are non-PWID, these are PWID, and you see compliance to, uh, uh, completed the treatment 80% versus 71%. So even with a horrible medication like interferon, uh, PWIDs really did okay. Um, the rates of infection are low among people who ever injected drugs. Uh, there's quite a range here from 47 down to, in the Netherlands, 0.76. What do you think the difference is, Netherlands, Norway? Why is that? They're not very authoritarian. They, don't, they favor needle exchange. Right. Somebody got the answer right. You get a free package of medication. <laughs> okay. Um, so, yes. So, facing this problem head on instead of hiding our heads in the sand and present, pretending, number one, that it can't be done, and number two, that we don't like treating drug users, I think is not going to solve our problem. If you have a look at the, uh, at the risk, uh, you, on this end is younger people, so this is 15 to 25, they have a lower risk of advanced disease. The disease takes a decade or more, uh, usually two decades, to progress to cirrhosis, so they're at lower risk of liver disease, but much higher risk of spreading this to the other people. If you could clean up a group of, uh, of injectors, they could keep injecting without getting hepatitis C. Here you have a moderate risk of advanced disease and a moderate risk of transmission. And then when people get older and they have the means and they can afford their own uh, syringe or they're involved in needle exchange program and they've wised up a little bit, the uh, risk of liver disease is very high. The risk of transmission goes down. Um, so <clears throat> if you have a look at, um, the, uh, at the data on on drug users, you see here, this is the number of people total, three and a half, two, over, over half of them are former drug users. If you look at the, di at the, uh, <clears throat> at the diagnosed and aware, uh, it's less, uh, more than half are aware. If you have a look at who's been treated, 16% treated, but only one to nine percent drug users. So there's a real um, there, there's a real reluctance among physicians to treat drug users, sort of ignoring the public health consequences of doing that. Um, if you have a look at optimal screening and treatment, we could do, we are expecting, uh, this was before, uh, before antiviral therapy, here is with treatment, and here is the potential if we would face this as a, um, as a, a public health problem. Um, so what do you have to do? Okay, I'm, uh, the noise is getting so high, I'm not sure I can even hear myself. Um, so, uh, so here are the things. Number one, you can screen for hepatitis C. It's not that hard. There is one test. There is a point of care test if you prefer. Uh, it's called Orasure um, or a quick. You just take a finger stick. It's like it's like doing a blood uh, a blood glucose. If you um, 
If that comes back positive, you may have been one of those people who got infected and got over the infection. So, um, so if you're one of those, there's no need for treatment. So the important thing is the second step, and that is get a viral RNA. You need to check the RNA because people may have the antibody and not have the infection. So that's number two. And then number three is refer to experienced clinician. So you saw on my first slide that I had Project ECHO. Our goal with Project ECHO is to teach primary care providers and other healthcare providers to treat hepatitis C in their communities. It's a video-based, case-based learning system in which people become expert. So this isn't only happening uh, in the ivory tower at Baylor College of Medicine. We're trying to make sure that there is a uh, democratic diffusion of this information into the, uh, into the community. So how do you screen? It's very simple. Uh, all of these organizations, uh, the uh, Infectious Disease Association, the U.S. Preventive Task Force, World Health Organization, have all recommended tr uh, screening for people of certain with, uh, with risk factors. If you have a look across the board, here's uh, American Association for Study of Liver Disease, Preventive Task Force, CDC, and WHO, and my knowledge is this is not Doctor Who, this is actually the United Nations uh, World Health Organization, um, all recommend this. The only one that's left out of, w of WHO is the birth cohort, which is recommended for Americans. The treatment is very easy, uh, the, uh, the screening is very easy. There's an antibody test, there is a RNA, and there is even one order where you can do the antibody with automatic reflex to, uh, to the RNA. Um, the uh, uh, high-risk phase, so the other, the other problem I have is people say, well, I don't feel bad. And, and I have physicians say, oh, I checked, the liver tests were normal, patient doesn't feel bad, I didn't screen them. That is completely the wrong approach because these people are frequently asymptomatic. You cannot tell by symptoms or by blood tests that the patient has hepatitis C. So get past that and just say screen based on risk factors. Um, oops. Okay, so provide counseling. How are you going to do this? You're going to do the screen. If the screen is negative, patient doesn't have hep C. Say, thank you, congratulations. If you're going to shoot up, please use a clean needle. You won't get hepatitis C. If you share a needle with your friends, you're very likely to get hepatitis C. If you screen them and they're positive, you have to say, sorry, we need another test. Another test is your RNA. So you have to test here for hepatitis C RNA. Okay. If the hepatitis C RNA is positive, what happens then? Um, well, if it's negative, they're not an active carrier, no need to worry. If they're positive, you tell them, you have hepatitis C. This has been with you anywhere from a week to 25 years, 50 years. I have people who got infected 40 years ago. It lives for a very long time. It never goes away by itself. So you tell your patient you, uh, that you have the treatment, you tell them it is a serious infection, and you tell them a cure is almost guaranteed. Two years from now, there will be no such thing as a person who cannot be treated with hepatitis C. We're already at 95 to 100%, and we're going to be at 100 to 100% before very long. So, there should be no excuse. Um, there are some screen billing and uh, codes. Uh, I'll save you the trouble of trying to read those. I can't read them myself. 
but there are all of these uh, ICD-9 and ICD-10 codes related to uh, the, the need for screening and why you would screen. <clears throat> um, if you know they have the RNA, send them, either find a clinician who wants to work in your own center and have them contact Project ECHO and figure out a way to do it at your center or find a local provider who is interested and that could be it's usually not a gastroenterologist it's usually an internal medicine doc sometimes a gastroenterologist if you live in a place where they have a transplant program they'll have a hepatologist um, but if there is any interested provider they can use Project ECHO to become expert in management and even though I get paid for doing this I have to just admit it's not that difficult. There are some choices you have to make and there's just a bunch of tricks like everything else we do in medicine. Um, okay, uh, we want to know the liver stiffness. Uh, th this is something that the hepatologist or gastroenterologist will do. There are non-invasive and invasive options. Uh, this is liver biopsy and these are some non-invasive options. If your patient says, I'm not having a liver biopsy, that is not an excuse not to go forward. We almost, we do very few liver biopsies now because the treatment is very good and we have other ways of, uh, of doing it. Um, so here are the, a couple of clinical models. The, the best way to do this is co-localized. You have a patient at a center, you have their addiction specialist, you have all of their ancillary services. Treating them while they're there is definitely the best way to do it and also the best time to uh, educate them about harm reduction. Telehealth here in the middle. This is close to my heart because this is how Project ECHO works. We can either do direct care, but we're much more interested in educating people so they can do the direct care. Direct care by video isn't nearly as impactful on the patient as knowing that their local physician or their local provider is taking an interest and in managing their case. And it really helps to wrap this up in a big care package. Um, and then uh, the other option is to refer them to someone who is interested in doing this. So, the message of this conference, uh, of this uh, lecture, was uh, you have high-risk patients. If they're high-risk, you should screen them. If you screen them and they're positive, you must make the diagnosis using the RNA. If you know that they have an infection, you need to get them to some kind of care, preferably in your own center, but if not, to a environment. Now, what is the, re the likelihood that you refer a patient to me? Let's say your office is one block away. You refer that patient to me. What is the likelihood that patient will come and see me? Yeah, someone was optimistic and put up one finger. It's, it's probably less than 20%. It's probably less than 10% because people don't want to confront this. So if you're going to do that, you have to encourage them every time. You have to help them make the appointment. You know, you ha I, I get this, ha people make appointments for their patients and they don't show. We call them back. We say, why aren't you here? We want to see you. So, because this is so, this can have such an impact on their lives that burying their heads in the sand is a problem. Okay, so follow up with a patient and the hepatitis care provider. Find out, if, if I get a referral and the patient doesn't show, I call the referring provider and say your patient didn't show just so there's no disconnect they know that this wasn't the loop wasn't closed okay so that is the entire message thank you very much for your attention mm -hmm.